0: Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. I've gotta thank you for nominating and voting for God Knows Where in Best of the Pine Belt and enduring my, we'll call it encouragement, I guess, to keep voting during these long windows this summer. I'll be sure to let you know how it turns out later this week, now that the voting is over. But for now, all I can say is thank you. We're two weeks away from school starting again. My kids are about to be back in school and I've been plotting and planning as much as I can over the summer for a couple of new things for God knows where. And today's episode is gonna be a precursor to some of what's ahead and how we'll look at some stories we've heard and some that we haven't and I hope we'll look at all of it in a new light. But today's episode is also a rerun. It's just where I am in life right now. This isn't the most listened to episode. It's not got the catchiest of titles, but it's one of a handful of episodes that I put out so far that speak most clearly for me about how I look at this whole thing we call our tradition. And Maybe you've heard this one before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe, like most sermons you've heard in your life, you've forgotten it by now. But for today, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Get Biblical. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been re-watching Good Omens at my house. It's Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman's look at an angel and a demon working together to prevent Armageddon from taking place. They don't want it to happen because they've both grown to care for and in some ways love humanity deeply. It's hilarious It's thought-provoking. I think it's on Amazon Prime, and I highly recommend you watch it or read the book, whichever you prefer to do. But throughout it, there's a whole lot of talk of prophecy, what will come true, what has been promised to come true. And, And while the Bible plays a role in the prophecy that they talk about in Good Omens, and while it has its own prophecies and perspectives on Armageddon, The folks in Good Omens are mostly consumed with this other book. It's called The Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter, Witch. It's the only prophetic book to correctly predict everything that will ever happen. And it was published just before Agnes is burned at the stake for heresy. And her book in Good Omens is revered as the final word on all that has and will happen, including when and where and how the world will end in our world, the Bible, our Bible, is is full of stories of our faith. It's full of the movement of God through this group of people, this small group of people surrounded by massive kingdoms who somehow were able to persevere through it all. And then how through one of them, we came to see that death has no power over us. The Bible is full of these Beautiful poems and letters and parables and laments and even prophecies that came true that help us figure out how to make our way through all that life throws at us. And because of that, we've come to revere it. But I don't think Scripture was ever meant to be revered. I think it was meant to be applied. We've come to revere the Bible as the final word the final word on everything, the thing that has the answers to all our questions. The Bible says it. I believe it. you probably heard that from someone, right? I know I have. And if you haven't heard anybody say that, you've probably heard all manner of discussions of certain behaviors or practices or ideas or or whatever they may be. These things being biblical or not. We've been taught throughout our lives that the Bible is the final authority on a host of issues. But for Jesus, the Bible, Scripture as He knew it, wasn't the final word. We have to remember that 100% of the New Testament was written after He died, and some of the Old Testament, even the Psalms, weren't in the form that we read them today until then, too. For Jesus, Scripture was never the final word. More often than not, it was the first word. And because of that, we've got to let go of this idea that God stopped speaking when the ink dried on the last book of the Bible. We have to let go of that idea so that we, the church, can continue to move forward in our efforts to build the kind of world that Jesus taught us to build. Our way of approaching scripture makes it hard for us to move forward, not just because it's different than Jesus' approach to Scripture, but because when we do that, when we approach it that way, we get ourselves in a bind immediately. Rachel Held Evans, whose life was immensely too short, but who offered so much great wisdom to us while she was here. She wrote in her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, quote, If you are looking for verses with which to support slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you'll find it. If you're looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does it say, but what am I looking for? I suspect Jesus knew this when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you want to do violence in this world, you will always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you will always find the balm, end quote. Like so much of what Rachel Held Evans wrote in her life, that is an absolute mic drop. Whatever is biblical is contradicted by something else that is also biblical. So which biblical thing do we follow? How do we know when we're choosing a biblical thing to follow? that it's the right biblical thing to pay attention to. This is exactly why I hope that you will never hear me use Bible verses to prove my points, but rather to illuminate ideas or to start conversations, because that's what I think Jesus did. And if you ever hear me using Bible verses as this way, I want you to call me out on it. Please, please call me out on it. I don't want... ...to come across that way or to use that line of argument with you or or with anybody else. Because Jesus never said, the Bible says it, I believe it. When we look at how Jesus references scripture, he does so regularly to do two things. First, to connect himself to the hopes and dreams and expectations of his people. Who their Messiah will be, what the Messiah would do, and, and so on. Like in Luke 4... When Jesus reads from Isaiah in the temple, he takes the Holy Scriptures, he reads from them, and he reads from them as though they're a description of his mission written hundreds of years before he was born, that he came to fulfill this mission that was written about the Messiah. And secondly, Jesus uses Scripture as a starting point, not an ending point. He repeatedly says, it is written, or you have heard it said, before reinterpreting those words and thoughts in light of new information, or in light of his present context, or in light of new experience in someone's life. Take, for instance, Matthew 5, when Jesus says, We've heard an eye for an eye is a just punishment, but all that's ever led to is more violence. So instead, we should be willing to turn the other cheek. For Jesus, the scriptures were never the last word. More often than not, they were the first word. They were the starting point of a conversation, not the destination. I can't stress that enough. But we want the Bible to be the last word, don't we? We want it to be final and complete. We love that God has spoken, but we aren't so sure that we want God to keep speaking. Because if God keeps speaking, then we still need to listen. And God might say something that we've never heard or considered before, and that might mean that we have to reconfigure our worldview, and that sounds exhausting. Jesus didn't approach Scripture as a period. Instead, I think he saw it as a comma. I'll never forget the first time I saw my friend John Chapman, a United Church of Christ pastor, wearing a lapel pin that at first, when I saw it, I thought it was a teardrop, and that seemed like an interesting lapel pin to, to wear, it seemed like an interesting fashion choice, and I asked him about it, and he said, it's not a teardrop, it's a comma. In the UCC, we hold to the idea that God is still speaking, that there's more to be said, that there's more for us to hear, that God continues to have more and more to say and more and more to show us. This is exactly what God does over and over in the Scriptures. That's exactly what God does in Jesus. Jesus' life, when we look at it in the Gospels, Jesus' life is the definition of reconfiguring our worldview. The Messiah who was promised has now been delivered. The Savior who died has now been resurrected. The mission many thought was lost when He died, has now expanded all over the globe. And God gave us the Spirit as a guide, a voice to continue to speak, and for us to listen to as we move through the world. But we have to remember that what changed people's lives, what has changed our life, what changed my life, wasn't a written word. It was the living word. And the living word didn't first change people's lives by how great things became in their life because they came to see it and to know it, but rather by how unafraid those who had witnessed or heard or been touched by the living word while it was walking on earth, how unafraid they were to follow him wherever he led. Will Campbell gets at this in the novella that he wrote that follows up The Glad River. It's called Cecilia's Sin. It follows three Dutch Anabaptists desperately trying to preserve the stories of their brothers and sisters who did not believe that the Roman Catholic Church had a monopoly on truth. Each day, more and more reformers like them were being drowned or burned or otherwise disposed of because of their beliefs. And Cecilia and Goris and Peter are feverishly trying to collect their stories throughout the book. But as it becomes clear that they won't escape either, that they'll face the same fate that so many like them in the 15th and 16th centuries faced, Cecilia begins to burn the pages and pages of stories that they had written down. She says to her friends, the writing of the story isn't the story. As they burn the final page, which was the first they had written. She says to him, we've reached the beginning. There is no ending. That was the error of Rome and Wittenberg, of Geneva and Zurich, and almost us as well. To end the story. The end of a story can only be defended with violence. Nothing else is left. End quote. If there's one thing our holy scriptures tell us, if there's one truth we find in the stories we're told of Jesus' life, it's this. Whenever we think the story is over, whether it's the Egyptians at our back and the Red Sea in front of us, whether it's the destruction of the temple and the expulsion from our land, whether it's the crucifixion of our Savior, it's only just the beginning. God always has something new to say. The story is never over. So for us, instead of coming to Scripture asking, what does it say? What is its final word on this issue or topic? Let's come to Scripture asking instead, where is this leading me? Where is this leading us? What is this compelling me to do differently in my life? How is this forcing me to see the world or my neighbors or myself differently? When we read scripture, let's not go hunting for certainty. Let's go in search of a conversation. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife, Elizabeth. If you like what you hear... I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It would mean the world to me, and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.